right. So, um, so what we wanted to talk about today is uh, a, a subject that you have written about, become interested in recently, and, and that's always a good jumping off point for us. Uh-huh. And and what it is is an it's a new personality system, mm-hmm. personality scheme scheme. Yeah, at least new to me, anyway. Yeah, yeah, and new new to me too. Although I've heard about it. Mm-hmm. And what is it called? The Big Five. Well, now it's called the Hexaco system. That's okay. six. Before that, the Big Five was a personality system that gained a lot of prominence in the 70s and 80s and since because it was the only personality system that wasn't based in a theory. Mm-hmm. You know, Freudian theory, MMPI, Rorschach, Jungian theory, Myers-Briggs, um, the Aeneids and Gurdjieff, Enneagram. Uh, but this was a bunch of geek scientists got together and gave thousands of people, hundreds of adjectives to describe themselves and other people. And then they did with the computers of the 70s, they put it, they did factor analysis and they found five continua, which are five factors that explained everything to them. Okay, mm-hmm. which scientists love stuff like that. I mean, yeah. personality theorists just go, they just, you know, that's a wet dream for personality theorists. So <laughs> they had, those five characteristics, and everybody thought, okay, you know, and they did other studies in different countries, and those five characteristics were introversion, were extroversion, you know, they're all continua, you know, extroversion, introversion. One of them was called neuroticism, which meant you were emotionally sensitive and empathic or you weren't. Um, another one was openness to new experience. Uh, or close to experience. Another one was agreeableness or not being agreeable. And the other one was conscientiousness. So in the 90s, these two graduate students at the time, Kibion Lee and Michael um, Ashton, they said, well, let's just try some country in the East. So obvious Kibion Lee is of, of Korean extraction, I, I guess. So they went to Korea and got a whole bunch of students did this thing. And then when they were doing their data analysis with modern computers in the 90s, they said, well, let's test for six, seven, eight, nine, ten variables, you know, factors. Why not? And then it was, the computer sped out the results, and it wasn't seven or eight or nine. It was six. There was a sixth variable. And then, whoa. For, for a couple of graduate student personality researchers, they're looking at the rest of their lives if they see this. <laughs> okay. Okay, yeah. Because, all right, we're, we just discovered this, and now in our field, we're the founders of this thing, and they've been researching it for the last 25 years. And that extra, that extra dimension was honesty, humility. Hmm. That people, high on honesty, humility, were, cared about others. They were egalitarian to the extent I don't want special stuff. Um, they, they told the truth. It bothered them when they didn't tell the truth. They didn't feel a particular drive to lord over other people or have higher status. They wanted status that felt right within their group, and they wanted other people to have equal opportunity for status. That's high honesty humility. Low honesty humility people said, I will do whatever it takes for me to get ahead, and I will exploit other people to do it. Um, and um, I'm special. And I, not only do I deserve special treatment, but people of my group deserve special treatment. Uh, so there's some things about this that, that are amazing to me. Well, um, be- before we get in further, let me just sure. sort of nail it down for myself. Sure, sure, sure. So, so of these, the original five, so extroversion, introversion, I think we all know that when that comes through in Myers-Briggs, that comes through in the Enneagram in various ways. And, and, and maybe just even to put a bigger palette or you know, canvas here, when we talk about um, personality typologies, we're talking about, you know, sort of, if certainly firmware in us. Yes, you know, exactly. Maybe not quite hardware, but firmware. 
that we are born into it maybe it's our karmic stream it might just be an accident of you know how brains are wired but uh but at any rate we come in with certain predispositions and of course typologies is one of the five elements of the aqua map of ken wilber's aqua theory and you know so this is a real foundational thing of how we would describe ourselves and yes and other and other people and what are the, the makeup and so so anyway so we have this extroversion introversion that shows up in a lot of places empathetic and non-empathetic that would be if i think of myers-briggs i would think of the difference between a feeler and a sensor mm -hmm. so if somebody's more concerned with getting the job done and not so concerned about people's feelings the other side of the continuum is you're really just tuned in other people's feelings and and for you you want everybody to be happy yes right so that's right. That, that. so then there's openness and not openness that feels a little new to me in, mm -hmm. from the other typologies in a, in a certain way and you know of course we would i think most of us would default to openness being better but what's the upside of not openness well, for, now, first of all, I love you going through it. it it's, it's openness to new experience and, and openness to receiving influence and changing your perspective. Okay. And then if you're low on openness, you want to stay with what you know. You're not open to new experience. You want to, it's more conventional. And, you know, you can't, you can't be an integral and not, and not see the value memes coming through this. Yeah. Now, and so people that are low in openness and new experience can, ha can have the same virtues that any conformist group can have. Mm -hmm. um, um, they can, uh, and, and we'll talk more about that when we talk about social dominance orientation later on. They can uh, uh, have the same understanding that we have uh, uh, values that are more important than other things, and we share these values, and they're important to us, and we don't want to change them. And you can give me data about that, but I'm not going to change my beliefs uh, mm -hmm. because my beliefs are important to me. Mm -hmm. In other words, and, and the, the other thing about, about uh, emotional intelligence is that you're more generous emotionally. Uh, the, the, the hexaco, they call it hexaco system, those six factors, they, they don't call it neuroticism. They call it emotionality, which I think is a less pejorative mm -hmm. term. Mm -hmm. And if you're high in it, you're also more generous. You, you know, you want to give particularly to people that, that you know. Mm -hmm. So, okay. all right. So that that would that yeah. would be the openness, and and there's a benefit to not open if you're really in the, some ideology, or you know, if you don't really want to um, dilute this sort of passion you might have, or something. See your see your great example for me was the the. Uh, the head of Shotokan Karate, uh, Susomi Oshima. You know, he taught Shotokan Karate. Now, it didn't really matter if there was data that showed that some of those techniques were not good for your body or were less effective. <laughs> it's a very good example. Okay. Yeah. He, it's, yeah. it's Shotokan. He work in the system. There was a purity about it to him um, that I still, to this day, admire. He, he, look at a, a Zen Roshi and head of his, his temple. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there, I, I, I don't particularly find uh, Zazen to be my favorite spiritual practice. I do meditation, doing things that Zen Roshis would disapprove of, mm -hmm. like when I'm swimming or walking or, um, or that kind of stuff. Right. Okay? Yeah. Oh, got it's, it. You know, in some ways, you're, you're keeping the faith. You're keeping the, the, you know, the orthodoxy. If you're a healthy version. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a healthy the, version. Yeah, I'm trying to find the healthy version too. If we think when we get to honesty and humility, they're probably on a hard, hard time. That's exactly right. <laughs> but, and that's interesting. But let's go through the original five. So we have the extroversion, we have the empathy, we have the openness, we have agreeable. So agreeable uh -huh. and disagreeable. And this is good for me, Keith, because it normalizes the fact that some people are just fucking disagreeable. <laughs> they so are. And, you, know, you know, maybe they just get to be, and I don't have to have a big charge about it. Well, first of all, it's a liability socially. Yeah, they're definitely paying the price. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's funny when they're writing the book, they said people that are low on, on honesty and, and, and emotionality and agreeableness are just plain nasty. <laughs> yeah. It was like, I thought, God, it's nice to hear researchers use terms like that. Yeah, you're litigious. 
um, yeah. you're 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 you find other people irritating or offensive. Yeah, uh, you're quick to uh, criticize others, and you're hypersensitive to criticism. To you, you're low yeah. on agreeability. Yeah, yeah. Now, now there could be a healthy version. <laughs> now, you look, you're really high on agreeableness. Obviously, I, I, I am high on agreeableness. I, I will yeah. say. Uh, and there's a downside to that too, but we're not going to get hung up here. Some of this stuff is obvious here. Right? Well, the, yeah, healthy and unhealthy on each end. Uh, thank you. There you except, go. except this last one. But before yeah. we get to that, so extroversion, empathy, openness, agreeableness, and then the last one's conscientiousness. Yeah. Which um, some people are just not very conscientious. Impulsive, can't yeah. keep, don't, don't stick to to finish something. Um, uh, hard for them to make a commitment and then follow through on it. Uh, uh, now, maybe if you, a little ADD in there, maybe a little, you know, maybe some creativity comes with that. Um, yeah, uh, it, it, you can see that a healthy version of that is somebody that is just allowing themselves to flow with the inner rhythms. And particularly around creativity, those inner rhythms can lead you to novel places. Yeah. Um, I mean, the thing that people don't realize about ADD is people with attention deficit disorder can stay concentrated for many hours on things that they like, like an art project or a video game or something like that. It's just that they have about a 20th of the tolerance of boredom that the rest of us have. <laughs> so when they're not bored, it's not a problem. Yeah. If they're not bored, it's not a problem. If they're bored, bam, they're, they disappear. They're gone. Yeah. Uh, and so that's... Yeah, there you go. And, it, yeah. and, you know, conscientiousness, there was an interesting statistic. They said if you want a, a really good employee, you want somebody who's high on honesty and humility and high on conscientiousness, you can have a good employee who's low on honesty and humility and high on conscientiousness, but they'll leave in a minute if somebody gives them a better offer. And they might rip you off if they get a chance. Okay. But if they're smart, they won't, because you make a lot more money not ripping people off than ripping people off, so to speak. Right. Okay. Yeah. So that's yeah, conscientious. Yeah, got it. Okay, cool. So there we have those first five, extroversion, empathy, openness, agreeableness, conscientiousness. And so now we go into this new factor that arose out of the data some, in some magical way that the data does that. <laughs> Yeah, well, factor I, analysis. I, I wouldn't understand it anyway. So yeah, anyway, well, it arises this new uh, this new factor, uh, mm -hmm. and that is honesty slash humility. Yeah, and high on as I said earlier are these qualities being honest and low on honesty, humility, being more arrogant and entitled. And as far as I can tell, this is a discriminative variable, because I can only think of one healthy version of low honesty humility. And that's, if you're in a war and you want somebody to go and destroy the enemy without thought to the cost to your soldiers or them, you want somebody that's really low on honesty, humility, high on conscientiousness. Okay? Yeah. And we had people like that. The guy who ran the bombing campaign on Japan. Yeah. Okay, that guy killed hundreds of thousands of Japanese and they probably didn't care that much about it. He was very low on this quality, but very high on conscientiousness. Mm -hmm. um, um, I can't think of any other um, place for that, but given that all these have arisen from our tribal roots, you can see that it's useful in a tribe to have somebody that is willing um, to do extreme things to give themselves an advantage or to um, exploit or manipulate other people just in case the 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 group, the, you know, the family, the kinship group, which your tribes are, is encountering some threat. You want somebody who doesn't have, a, a, doesn't have scruples and doesn't have empathy. You want yeah. them to deal with that. Why? My, it's, a, it's, it's an ugly business. It's an ugly business. You know, my biggest problem as a martial artist was my empathic capacity, which is, you know, pretty large. And so I, the hardest thing for me to learn was to cut myself off empathically from another person when I was um, doing um, uh, violent stuff with them. Um, and, and so I think I, the reason why I'm saying this is all six of these have a normal distribution, which is kind of amazing. That means if you take a bunch of humans, there's going to be as many people below the norm on honesty, humility, 
as above the norm. And this is inherent. Two-thirds of personality is, is inherent, is genetically programmed. A third of it comes from um, random events and culture. And as far as the, the personality theorists have been able to discover through analysis of twin studies and fraternal twins and so on, and, mm -hmm. and sisters, none of it comes from family. Which is, and you know, th this confused me until I realized psychopathology does. So psychopathology is another dimension. You have more or less psychopathology depending on how nurturing your family is and your experiences, more or less physical and psychological symptoms, not just never mind psychopathology, but actually physical pathology. Um, but, but you're the same personality having that experience. Yeah. And I think given um, the spiral dynamics principle of life conditions produces worldviews, I suspect that different kinds of life conditions tend to, to amplify some of these six traits, and certain life conditions tend to suppress them. For instance, if we were in East Germany circa 1955, um, it would tend to suppress honesty and humility. Um, yeah. uh, it would tend to suppress um, uh, emotional sensitivity. Uh, it would tend to increase conscientiousness because the people that weren't paying a lot of attention got thrown in jail. Yeah. The, because in East Germany, they had 900,000 citizens whose job was to inform on other citizens. Yeah. And so it was a culture that amplified uh, paranoia as a survival technique. Whereas if you go to Boulder and hang out with Jeff, um, <laughs> you being more conscientious and more friendly and more agreeable or more honest and humble, will be rewarded by the culture and you're surrounded by people like that. This is what Ken used to say, like a culture will suck you up, you know, center of gravity. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, then that's going to amplify those, those traits and, and tamp down a little bit the egocentricism perhaps, yeah. um, or the manipulativeness perhaps. So what are you seeing? Uh, if, if, as you look at this sort of leading edge of the culture, your, your clients, perhaps to people and your friends, What's, how is this inform that, uh, <clears throat> that sort of next stage of development? We're always talking about what's integral like, you know? You know, and, and this is something that I've learned a half dozen times, and I keep learning it again. So I must be either forgetting about it or, or having a deeper understanding. There's something innocent about the idea that we have a personality and what we need to do is be a healthy version of that personality rather than change. Okay. Can we just pause there? That's really great. We have a personality and the idea is to be the best of that personality possible instead of trying to change it. Yeah. 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 Because trying to change our basic nature leads to fundamental shame. You know, I, I wish I had read these the studies before I wrote my book, The Gift of Shame, because it would have been an, an, an added level of, of, of addressing the dynamic. Because, because we're so social, we, we learn to be ashamed of the parts of us that are either disapproved of by our family and culture, or um, in our own opinion, don't fit in with our family and culture. And particularly, we tend to, and there's, a, there's some interesting research about this that, that maybe we can talk about another time more, but um, we tend to, to, to get our motivations, our goals, through um, mirroring. That, that what we want tends to be a reflection of what the culture says is valuable. Um, so American culture of the 90s and 2000s said being rich and famous is, is great, you know, being, because we're shifting into this, this individualistic thing out yeah, of the, out the modern, you know, that's sort of, sort, of, sort of part of the pathology of modernity. Yeah. So, so, so how about if you're not wired particularly to want to be famous or to not, or to want to be rich past a certain point? I mean, happiness doesn't, doesn't increase after about $120,000 a year. Okay? But what if I'm wired to think, well, I'll be a lot happier if I make 10 million, okay? 
well, what's wrong with me? I made my 10 million. I'm not happy. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, if I get famous, I'll be a happy person. Well, wait a minute, I'm famous. Yeah. How come I'm not happy? Well, those, those values weren't generated intrinsically coming who I am coming out into the world. They were absorbed by some kind of mirror mirroring process. I, I think probably the mirror neuron um, phenomena that is so popular in terms of knowing, knowing about um, interpersonal relationships and how we exchange moods and all mm -hmm. that. I think that there are deeper levels of that that we're going to keep discovering neurologically and, and psychosocially, um, you know, in the lower left yeah. and the lower right quadrant. Yeah. And, and so we tend to get ashamed then if, if I'm doing what I'm supposed to do and I'm not feeling great, I'm, there must be something wrong with me. Now, if we, if we fully embrace type, we go, okay, wh who am I? And what is it that, my, that I intrinsically yearn for? And when I get some of that, it makes me feel more complete and more good and more whole. Okay. Um, you know, when we've talked about sex, this is, one of my, this is one of my favorite ways of seeing it because it's easier to see. Um, it, it's pretty clear now that people don't decide as much what gets them off sexually as discover what gets them off sexually. Mm -hmm. Okay, so somebody discovers they get off on, I don't know, you know, BDSM, okay? Bondage, submission, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. All right, so rather than go, well, what's wrong with me? Because that doesn't fit with, say, my fundamentalist Christian culture or something, or being gay, you know, in a fundamentalist Christian culture. You go, well, I guess that's who I am. What's a healthy expression of that? Okay. Um, you know, you look at the different turn-ons. You know, there's the sexual turn-on, the energetic turn-on, um, the emotional turn-on, uh, the kinky turn-on, the, the shapeshifter turn-on. Uh, everybody has a number one and number two of turn-ons. Uh, it's another typology system. Okay, so that's my type. What's a healthy expression of that? And more importantly, what's that healthy expression of that with my lover? And how can my lover and I kind of work with our turn-ons? What this does is, is it, it begins to take those the moral judgments that we instinctively make of people that don't value what we value or don't care about what we care about. It turns them into more from uh, a moral judgment into curiosity. Yeah. Okay. Now, when we have curiosity about ourselves, uh, uh, curiosity about other people, we begin to, to do these, these psychological miracle transmutations, these philosopher's stone transportations, transmutations that are our human heritage, for instance, turning shame into regret. Okay? I work all day long regularly helping people turn shame into regret. I regret having done things that were not optimal things. But if I'm not feeling shame about it, I've shifted from that interior sense of I was bad and I get whatever bad people get to I didn't know then what I know now and I made a mistake and I regret making that mistake, okay? which, which positions me in the present moment moving forward in a, in a positive developmental arc. Yeah, okay. rather than stuck with that sort of magnetic pull of shame. Yeah, and so typology, fully embracing typology systems gives us that, for instance, there is, and everything's episodic, right? I look back at the times that I had low H, you know, I was highly egocentric and entitled and, you know, um, uh, was willing to lie to somebody. I mean, you know, in, back in, the, in when I was a hippie, it was completely moral to lie to institutions and to cops and to everybody. You were expected to, and... And, you know, you felt a little weird if you didn't, if you wanted to tell the truth, okay? Um, yeah. So that culture kind of amplified, you know, this is what Boonritis was. Uh, it amplified that narcissistic entitlement kind of thing. Yeah. And so, so people, people, and people are more fluid in their teens with these characteristics anyway. You get more solid in your 20s and your 30s. Uh, interestingly, uh, there's, there, there is evidence that political orientation is more a matter of personality type than it is around environment. 
So people in the United States in their teens were more likely to, to mirror their parents' political persuasion. Mm -hmm. But in their 20s, they start moving in a direction that's consistent with whether they are high on openness to experience or honesty, right. humility. And that's another part I hope we get to that because I found... Yeah. This well, yeah, that's what brilliant. I wanted to ask in general is, you know, of these various typologies, <laughs> what is it about this one that's captured your interest? You know, I think of myself with the Enneagram. Enneagram, just, I could just see through that lens so easily now. I've been doing it for years. Myers-Briggs, too, to some degree. So what's captured your fancy here? Well, first of all, honesty, humility, and humility is the discriminative variable in that, if you're low on honesty, humility, if you're, doesn't matter whether you're high or low at any of the other five, you're a problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not only are you a problem, you're going to have bad experiences of some sort, and other people should stay away from you. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Now, that's weird. In a, there's six factors. They all have a normal distribution. Of good and bad. Good and bad, except this one. Over on this side, if, and, and as a therapist, I want to find out what type of person they are and help them be a, a, a healthier version of that. I don't, when I'm working with people that are low in honesty and humility, the way that I appeal to them is enlightened self-interest. I, I remember one guy, really low on this. I said, okay, you want to be the man of wisdom. Okay, that appealed, appealed to him. Man of wisdom, yeah, that's me. You know, that's, that's a very special thing. I said, so if you're going to man of wisdom, you, you can't lie to your girlfriend or cheat on her, right? Because that's not being a man of wisdom. There's no, I guess not. Or, or scream or shout or, you know, or hit her. I mean, he was, he was in anger management. Yeah. You're right. And so he went to his anger management group, which was filled with guys like him. And he introduced them to the idea of man of wisdom. And the man of wisdom really kind of caught their imagination in terms of this is what we can use to not be such dicks when we're pissed. I want to be the man of wisdom, okay? It was enlightened self-interest. Neat. Yeah, that's okay. great. Right? Or one of my clients has an adult son who's obviously really low on honesty humility. Now, those of us that have, that have ever tried to help anybody know that there's certain people, you can just talk to them all day and all night about, you know, what's right and wrong, and things, you know, blah, 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 blah. You know, with almost any kid after 30 seconds, if they don't get it, then you're just, tormenting them with your voice. <laughs> I tell parents, shut the fuck up after a minute. If they, if they get it in a minute, great. If they don't, let's do something else. Well, he has got this 29-year-old son who's obviously low on us and unfortunately seems to be um, a little bit low on openness to experience, which is a little bit dangerous. And I said, all right, so with, with your son, stop lecturing him about what he needs to do and set up a contingency so that he has to deliver certain kinds of successful behavior if, you know, he's got to look for a job. Mm -hmm. He's got to show you evidence that he's looked for a job. Why do I have to show you evidence, Dad? Well, because we both know that you'll lie to me about looking for a job if you have an opportunity, because that's what you've done. So I'm, and I'm not saying this to say, you, you evil young man. I say, look, we know that you lie to me if you get a chance. I don't want to give you a chance to lie to me, so show me the yeah. thing that you're looking the for a job. Rational re response. Yeah, yeah, and you, you want the check, you know, like go look for the job. You want to stay in my house? Do this. Like set up a contingency so that he has to demonstrate success. Why? No matter what type of person you are, success is self-reinforcing. Yeah. Um, people that, are, uh, that have relatively high intelligence, general intelligence I'm talking about now, not, not emotional intelligence, there's, there's a, there is a general G. If they're low on, on uh, honesty and humility, but high on conscientiousness, they're hard workers, they generally don't do crime because in the United States it's much easier to get great wealth by being a successful business person than it is by creating crime. Criminals, people that are high on the dark triad, Machiavellianism, narcissism, and psychopathy, they tend to be very low on conscientiousness, very impulsive. Mm -hmm. um, and they're very low, of course, on empathy. <laughs> and they're very low on honesty, humility. And that's a dangerous comment. And generally, 
generally they tend to be below average in intelligence. And so somehow with all of this, I feel like we're talking about Trump again. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I'm gonna, I mean, I, okay. I'm going to anticipate. I'm going to do a Trump thing, okay? <laughs> We're going to get to this in just a second. Okay. Oh, okay. There's, an, there's two other factors that, that Lee co cross-correlated that I found so fascinating that, I've, that I wrote to you about them, and we'll talk about them. Social dominance, orientation, and right-wing authoritarianism, which are both personality characteristics. They called the lethal, the lethal union was a social dominant orient, oriented leader who's narcissistic, low on, on honesty, humility, will do anything to have power and status and wealth, and a right-wing authoritarian followers who obey established authority, follow conventional norms, and support aggression. They call that the lethal union. And that lethal union is what was the dominant force in our country for those four years. Yeah. And that's what produced, you, you look at any of the failed states, you look at any yeah. of the fascist states, and what you got is high social dominance orientation, which is really, really, really low honesty, humility, and then high right-wing authoritarianism, Conventional standards, obey authority, aggression at people that don't conform and obey. Yeah. Bam. Yeah. Trump. Yeah. No, for sure. And, um, you know, and, and yet I want to uh, add that we can bring development into that. I think that somebody like the, the, the personality of Trump, I mean, the fact that he's not more malignant, more violent, more whatever, is that he's in a container that won't tolerate it. That's right. You know, if you look back at 1920, you know, Russia, or 1930 Germany, they didn't have the guardrails for this. And so that could run rampant in a way that, you know, here it just still ran scarily rampant and still is. But not like that. You know, and as a rising tide floats all boats. Yeah. You know, in 19, 1953, Russia, Stalin killed 20 million of his own. You know, now, Trump would have killed people if he could have gotten away with it, but yeah. he didn't because he was in a culture that, that didn't allow it. Yeah. In fact, uh, um, Stephen Colbert did a, a parody about finding Banyan in contempt of Congress. That, that Banyan has to go through six different stages of evaluation of professionals before he goes to jail for up to a year, okay? Right. He was making fun of that. And I was looking at that and I was thinking, that is a triumph of, of development. <laughs> a triumph of what? Of development. That, yeah. that we have a culture that even when we really hate somebody and they're obviously guilty, there has to be six levels of, of people trying to do their job who've sworn an oath to the Constitution who have to say, yeah, we'll move him to the next stage before he gets injured, Yeah, that, that we're no, so cautious. Absolutely astonishing. It when is. You, you weigh it in, with human history. It's an amazing achievement. And yet yeah. bureaucratic and kind of mindless and stupid in some ways. But, you know, g give me that over not that. And I have a, I have a prediction to make about this. Um, you know, in most of the dystopia films, and, and, uh, and, and also Keith, when Keith gets upset, <laughs> they tend to say that the, the, uh, there'll be an oligarchy of big corporations that'll oppress and extract from everybody, and everybody gets screwed except for the big corporations, okay? But my prediction is that eventually this rising tide will create corporations that don't just have external constraints about having um, capital that are, is, is environmental capital and employee welfare capital um, and the general well capital. They won't just have external constraints around that. They'll have leaders on the inside that will have internal Absolutely. We're seeing that happening like crazy, really. We when are, you think of the 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 uh, uh, protests by the Netflix employees against Dave, Dave, Dave Chappelle's special. Oh yeah, that's interesting. You know? I mean, the, uh, the Facebook whistleblower. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, these companies have to keep their employees um, 
you know, they have the same moral sensibilities as the rest of the culture often, you know, even though the leader may be a narcissistic, you know, asshole, and often is. I have, I have a, a client who's a friend of Zuckerberg's. Mm-hmm. Known him for like 20 years. Yeah. Okay. Zuckerberg has been caught up by his own, his own, the, the wave of, of, of Facebook. Um, they spent hundreds of millions of dollars to, to try to, to, to edit content. He's very interested in uh, having Facebook and, and be a source of social enhancement rather than social de- degradation. Um, uh, when, you know, the studies that the whistleblower were, ta- were, were talking about, um, you could, the stuff that they, she was saying about Facebook, you could say the same thing about TV. It's, <laughs> and, and they did. The social uh, critics back then did. And in, vast in, wasteland. In, in, in Samoa, they didn't have teenage girls with eating disorders until they had TV. Yeah. Five years later, they had the same amount of eating disorders as girls in Western society. So his TV was bad for teenage girls. Now, the solution to that can't be to ban TV for everybody in the world. Solution to that is we need to take this form just like the internal combustion engine. You know, we start with pollution, you know, and, and, gas, and, then, and maybe what we end is hydrogen internal combustion where the two side, uh, side effects are water vapor and a little bit of, of excess heat, but no greenhouse grasses. Okay, so it, it, when something like that happens, what it is is to spur for further development. Of yeah. course, if you are high on social dominance orientation and you feel like something like Facebook is going to take wealth, power, or status from you, threaten you, then you are motivated to attack Facebook and say, well, the solution is to attack. Why? People high in social dominance orientation and or on right-wing authoritarianism are always for the current war, but for mm-hmm. different reasons. The right-wing, uh, the person who did this work was Bob Altemeyer, and the person who did the social dominance orientation was um, uh, uh, Felicia Prato and uh, Jim Sedanis. People with right-wing uh, authoritarianism, they want war at other people because the world's a dangerous place. And there's a lot of people out there that don't conform to conventional standards and don't obey our authorities. And so it's a good idea to attack them. Okay? Meanwhile, the social dominant orientation person says, yeah, there are people that want some of my status or wealth or power because it's a zero-sum game. And so I want to attack them to keep them down so I can stay up. They both like war, but they like it for different reasons, okay? yeah. which is which one of the, my biggest appreciation for Trump is that he didn't start a war. Yeah. It, it, that's, that's the thing was completely uncharacteristic for that combination. Yeah. 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 Well, the, you know, the, the, it's, the idea of leadership even, I always go back to stage theory, but if you think of pre-modern leadership uh, in traditional and particularly warrior cultures, leadership was about domination. Like, how could you get people to march in the direction you want them to march? You got to kill this many people. You got to terrorize this many people. You got to incent this many people. But it's very cold and calculating. Mm -hmm. And um, that is that's functional at that stage of development. You know, but now, uh, you know, how we have to bring them along. Now we have to make them, you know, want to do what we want them to do. Well, also, manipulation. It, we, yes, but may, okay, so manipulation. So manipulation, if you're high on honesty and humility, looks like most of the management consultants that you and I know. You know, why is it that so many integral people went, in, went into consulting with companies? Okay, well, you know, why, why was that so popular? You know, Integral Coaching Canada is a good example. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of people I work with. Most of them know, if they don't know Integral, they know Keegan. Yeah. Why? Well, I, I mean, the simple answer is, and I don't mean this in any, with any judgment, it's, that's where the money is. But yeah, it, it, exactly. 
Why is the money there? Because if you're a modern leader and you create an, an agile organization that has flex flow at, the, at, at whatever levels you can have it, and where you're not tied to, to the rigidity of, of convention, the, the rigidity of having to win rather than having to grow. You know, for instance, a company that doesn't have a, 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 a mission tends to dissolve, particularly if it has a founder. A company that has a mission that has sight and that tends to, to, to continue and grow. So if you want to make money, you need to be a leader that can create those kinds of groups. And again, this is enlightened self-interest because out of 59 different professions, the one that had the most psychopathy and the most people that had low, uh, high social dominance orientation was CEO. Okay, yeah. 59. Yeah. Yeah. But if you just say, I, I know that creating an agile company means having these things happening, well, that's evolution now going into the very competitive marketplace of the corporation. Yeah. And, and the only time that's a problem is when there's a monopoly. Now, when you have a monopoly, you find things that are kind of amazing. It, in, in the biggest, uh, in the biggest um, uh, state in India, it's 230 million people, okay? They wanted to help them out and they couldn't get them vaccinated. I, I don't know if you've seen this study. Uh, I, I wrote down the name of the state because I can't remember Indian names to save my life, but it was uh, oh, Uttar Pashdesh, okay? So here's what they did. They gave everybody, 230 million people, a box. In the box was a COVID testing set, four or five remedies that are really effective in the early stages of COVID, a pulse oximeter, a temperature, alcohol wipes, and some masks, okay, all that stuff in that box costs less than $3, okay, in India. All that stuff in a box in the United States costs about $1,000, yeah. if you can get that stuff. Oh, they also had doxycycline in it, okay? So they give that to every single person, 230 million people. Their rate of COVID went down 97.1%, okay? Why? They, did their, they got a cold, they did their thing, they, did their, they put on a mask and did social withdrawal. They did all this stuff that's effective in the early stages. And they, their COVID went down. They haven't had any deaths in the next province in the last couple of weeks. Okay. Wow. Well, there's under, a lesson in there somewhere. Under $3. You know, it makes me want to go to India and say, hey, look, sell me a million of those things. I'll come to the United States. I'll sell them for $10 a piece. Yeah. Uh, undercut the American pharmaceutical company by 10,000%. Make Keith a million dollars. Of course, I could never do that. Um, well, what you, I mean, you, I, just as a little thought experiment, you actually could. I mean, so we're talking whoa. about a thermometer. We're talking about this. We're talking about yeah. that. We're talking about that pill, a mask. You put it in a nice little box with your picture on it. And, you know, Dr. Keith's COVID. <laughs> there you go. So <laughs> it's, it, and so to me, the fact that that happened, that that was done in India, and, and that I found out about it. You know, at first, that study was suppressed, and they couldn't suppress it anymore. They, could, they, they wouldn't, you know, they had to, what was in the box finally had to come out. Yeah. Well, you put a couple million, hundred million of them out there. It's, you know, it's hard to keep the secret. 240 million. Yeah. So that's... To me, that's an example of, okay, so in the future, there is going to be people leading corporations. They go, yeah, let's make a lot of money and let's do what's best for our employees and best for us, but for the people Absolutely. and all that yeah. stuff. No, the intrinsic. Yeah. That's oh, well, the I, I saw another example of that. I actually did a, a little show on it today. It was an op-ed in the New York Times uh, by, a, and I thought it was significant because it was arguing for a uh, abortion to be legal in the first trimester and pretty much illegal or hard, very, very hard, but moving the bar towards the first yeah. trimester, which currently is it's, it's, it's the second, basically. And he explained that Roe yeah. v. way. And, um, it, and, and part of the article, was, it, was, it was a guest column. Part of it was describing how de facto, if this is so much, this is really what's happening anyway. 
That's right. Because people feel that way. And, and here's the thing. We were talking about how so these organizations, they have to deal with the rising consciousness of their you know, employees. Is that abortion providers don't want to provide abortions after the first trimester. They don't. It's too, too unpleasant. And it's interesting to me that, that, that at least if you look at the statistics, um, if you don't have a miscarriage the first trimester, probably the, 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 the pregnancy is kind of set. In other words, the woman's body has said, yes, I'm going to uh-huh. have a pregnancy. Good point. Yes, that's another piece of the puzzle, isn't it? Yeah, and so now we're talking about, okay, if psychologically you're not ready to have a child, then, and you determine that in the first trimester, all right, yeah. let, let's, and the first trimester is enough time to miss a period or two yep. and go, okay, yep. and have some, uh, to have a little bit of the, so people cannot have, get, get burst out of denial and so on. Um, it, it's, I, I, I like it that it's more difficult after mm-hmm. the, the, the first trimester. Why? There's more psychological investment. There's more psychological damage to the woman. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, mm-hmm. Now, no, it's just, that, just what you were saying that, you know, things get stabilized and it's like the die is cast after the first three months, psychologically, physiologically, for the baby itself. And that's interesting. And there's no data whatsoever on, on any kind of post abortion syndrome in women. Mm-hmm. Zero. Now I've talked to women. No data or no, no? Well, no, no. There's there's no there's there's no data supporting that there's a syndrome of women feeling bad about themselves or having tra- trauma from having uh-huh. an abortion. Right. Um, that what the data shows is women that have abortions feel fine about it afterwards. Mm-hmm. If they regret it, they regret it, but not with a sense of shame. Mm-hmm. That's what we're it, talking about. They regret it later because when they're 35 and they remember they're, and they're having trouble getting pregnant, they remember their abortion at 23 and they go, God, yeah. you know, I'd have a baby if I, yeah. but that, that's, that's, that's a function of their development through the different lifestyles because I didn't want to have any children at, tw- at 23 and at 33, I was desperate to have children. Mm-hmm. And, Is that right? Yeah. I dreamt about them. Really? Oh God. Yeah. You know, after I decided to get married, you know, Becky and I got married in the 11th or 12th yeah. year of our relationship, then I just started desperately wanting children. Uh-huh. And yeah, I, I mean, talk about it. It doesn't just happen to women. And then you had them. Yeah, I had them. Yeah, so that's all good. I was very yeah, happy my, I think that. of my poor mom and dad. They had two by the time she was 20 and he was 23. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, and, you know. And they did all right. They know? did all right? They did okay. I, I think about that. It makes me more forgiving of my mother when she, you know, was hostile or aggressive or scary when she, when I was four or five or six, she was 29. Yeah. She was a baby. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. I know. And that's something. So, you know, we talk about the evolution of culture, this evolution of this, the twenties as a life stage where you're not completely responsible <laughs> for yourself uh, like you used to be, you know? There's a great book by, by Meg J, J-A-Y, called The Defining Decade on the 20s. And particularly in this era where we have extended adolescence really into the late 20s for upper middle class stu- uh, yeah. people, especially middle class okay, people, yeah. um, it's, it's, it, the, the point that she makes and supports is very much that. You're, you're really setting yourself up socially, professionally, physically, and so on. Now, this brings us back to, you know, these six factors. Yeah. Right? So part of, part of the, the modern age is that, at least in the United States now, everybody can basically be themselves. They're really, you know, unless you're, unless you're robbing liquor stores, you kind of get to be who you are. Um, even when you're applying for jobs. You can, you can go apply for jobs and have tattoos up and down one side of your face. And, you know, if you're an adequate candidate for that job, they're going to hire you. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. this is just unheard of historically. Yeah. Uh, um, but what, do, what does that mean? That means that we do not have cultures around us saying, oh, we approve of exactly who you are. Because mo- a lot of people just feel basically unique. Okay. Um, that lack of external approval 
really amplifies interior shame dynamics because people walk around knowing that there's groups of people that I care about that really don't approve of or, or agree with something that I am, that I've discovered. Right. Okay? Right. And so there's a lot more pressure on us to have radical acceptance of ourselves. That radical acceptance means we're less likely to put dissociative barriers between us and parts of us that need attention. And so to go, wow, I'm pretty low on conscientiousness and honesty, humility. I probably should put some work into that or I'm going to have a lot of problems. Yeah. Um, and, I, and let me see, since I'm low on conscientiousness, maybe I, maybe I can get somebody to, ha to help me. Yeah. But good example of this, conscientiousness tends to go up in your 20s. Uh, there was someone I was working with who has a kid who has very little conscientiousness. So this kid has, and, and kind of low on, on honesty, humility too, okay? Mm -hmm. But he's a good kid. He's high on agreeableness, okay? He's high, <laughs> you know, he's yeah. high on openness to experience even. Yeah. So, and so this happened to me two or three times. So I said, if you can afford it, get somebody to sit down with, with him a couple hours a day, five days a week, to just be with him doing homework. You know, an ADD person, if there's a person around that, that lowers that threshold of distress and they can do homework because they're doing it with somebody else. So I, I remember telling one couple to do this, suggesting this with their kid. And so the kid kind of had that for five, into college, there was still somebody doing this, right? But at a particular point, something caught fire in this kid's heart. And then all of a sudden, bam. He's um, uh, uh, studying pre-med. That's something. Yeah, like, so what you want to do is... It kicked in. The conscientiousness kicked in. Why you provided, okay, you provided the external support where you're weak. Okay. Until, until there's some part of the magic of development causes yeah. us to want to keep self-transcending. Because yeah. self-transcendence is a characteristic, a temperamental character Aww. born with two. And at some point, that, that, if that's, that, that instinct to self-transcend combines with something that feels meaningful, like the fifth star or my five-star thing, you know, something that feels sacred to me. Some kind of alchemy happens when I'm launched into something yeah. bigger than me. Yeah. So many people get, get, get stuck or killed or, or lost in stuff before that, addiction or some dead-end job or something yeah. or, or like to use this kid as an example if he hadn't gotten support if he hadn't gotten that support. never never really got on track you know and that was that's his life so he never would have had a platform where he could step into yeah. pre-med because he wouldn't have passed algebra yeah. one yeah. but but he was and so there's always with typology <laughs> There's always the, the ontological evolutionary aspect of it that's driven off of this, the evolutionary instinct, this, this instinct for self-transcendence that everybody has to some extent. The thing about honesty, humility, humility uh, though, uh, that is still, it, it still buzzes in me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, this, these guys wrote a whole book on this. Yeah, so called The H Factor. they had a lot to say about it. Yeah, they did. Yeah. <laughs> They, they, we look, here's another fun thing, okay? Um, so they went, then they made the point. If you're low on honesty, humility, this is what happens if you're low on emotionality and low on agreeableness. You're a Spanish conquistador type, okay? <laughs> I can go out and wreck every culture so I can get a few bucks, okay? Yeah. Um, Kennedy. Kennedy was actually low on honesty, humility, but he was high on agreeableness and high on openness to experience. JFK. JFK, yeah. Yep. JFK. The, the person who was highest on openness to experience and highest on, on honesty, humility, Gerald Ford. Really? Gerald, yeah. Gerald Ford had a reputation. One person to serve with him in Congress 20 years. So I never knew him to lie. And he, he was humble enough that when his dog pooped on that White House carpet, he insisted on cleaning it up himself. Oh. <laughs> Gerald Ford. Yeah. No, good guy, for sure. Good guy. Okay, so now, JFK was one of our greatest presidents. Okay? Yeah. So it doesn't mean that you can't contribute. But, you no, know, JFK... Absolutely. Yeah. So, so well, it's... I, mean, I, I, I think even just using some of what we were talking about, I mean, 
it, it, it's functional for a tyrant to be tyrannical. And right, in the age of, 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 you know, red empire culture, that's, you know, sort of, I don't, I guess it's what you need, you know, and then the, there's sort of a, a, you know, more humane, more complex version of that in the sort of psychopathic CEO. That's right. You know, I that's mean, exactly in right. some ways you need that person who doesn't feel, you know, a lot of shame, doesn't feel a lot of, uh, you know, feels no not empathy. a lot of humility. Not you a lot of humility or empathy. Yeah, and sees that people can be moved by truth, lies, whatever it takes, you know. There was a great scene in The Big Short where this young guy who'd been making like three or $400,000 a year doing his thing, sitting down with, in the bathroom, washing his hands with the CEO. And the guy's saying, God, this pretty much wrecks my life, this whole thing. And the CEO's looking at him going, yeah? And it's like, just, just like, I, so what? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It is not wrecking. What do you want from me? Yeah, what do you want from me? It's not wrecking. <laughs> it's, it's not. It's not wrecking my life. Yeah. Um, no, it's true. It's it's, and you know, there's there'll be another version, uh, more humane, more complex version of that to come. I mean, I think we're probably seeing it. I think we're uh, seeing it. Yeah, with leaders who are, you know, more collaborative. You know, they just have a bigger sort of view more capacity for some of these other things i mean i don't know i'm sort of making it up as i go along here but well i've seen that see well I, I i've seen that well now there's you know my my sample is skewed it's people who seek out keith you know <laughs> so, so people low on, on honesty the, the way i low honesty or i low I'm, uh, uh, open a new experience ends up in my office is a husband or wife drags me drags them in right exactly. or or they've had such a devastating experience that they want somebody to help them metabolize a devastating experience but that being said the quality of the leaders of of the, the chief uh, coo ceos uh, ch chief technology officers and so on um and the psychological sophistication of their management techniques of, of some of them is um, very impressive to me, uh, and I and also I can I can I've I've mentioned this before when we've talked about it. I see what happens to organizations if they allow a, a poor middle manager in. Mm -hmm. It's it's like fruit of the poison tree. All the good people under that poor management start leaving. Yeah, um, and that manager might have short term gains. They might make more money and look better for a few years. But basically, the psychological infrastructure, particularly if it's a service organization, is gutted. Yeah. Um, and I think more, more and more organizations are understanding that. And here's the thing. If you really do want a high, honestly, humility, high extroversion and high, high, high agreeableness and high open to experience in a manager, uh, high emotional mm -hmm. level. Now, added on to that, if you're an agreeable person, we talked about this earlier, if you don't have a capacity to set boundaries, you become codependent. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's not so good. Codependence creates, it actually amplifies pathology. Yeah. And so the ability to say no, the ability to do something that creates injury, if it's the right thing, you can do it kindly or compassionately, is very much like a, a permissive parent versus a, an authoritative parent. An authoritative parent will set boundaries if necessary, but they'll do it in a matter-of-fact fashion without particular shame stuff. And they'll have a developmental orientation from the very beginning with kids. Right. Uh, um, if you have a permissive parent, then what it does is creates narcissism. And then by the time the kid is an entitled six or seven or eight-year-old, Particularly if they pass that eight-year-old, eight um, there's a it's a critical period where your personality kind of settles in. Uh, that it's going to be dealing with. You say that, and I think, thank God I didn't have kids. <laughs> My dogs are little narcissists. <laughs> I mean, I permissive is the word. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, I, I was I was pretty I was a pretty good parent. I was a great parent, and there's a lot of stuff that I would have done differently. Uh -huh, really? I remember my daughter said to me once, she says, yeah, daddy, I have daddy issues. I went, great. 
You know, like I, I thought I could be such a good daddy when I have I have daddy. It's just, well, just tell me how I can help, right? Yes, exactly. Which, which goes back to this thing about if we're going to be our own person, then our capacity for knowing ourselves and accepting ourselves needs to be proportionally higher than previous generations, which, and, and are integral, right? Yes. What's integral all about? Felt appreciation from multiple points of view. Yes. Um, a, a flex flow power dynamic, depending upon what demands of the situation. A radically diminished fear of death and of change. Yes. Um, uh, and it, it, in a way, the current culture is requiring of us to yes. be more evolved, to be more functional and the more ha healthier, happy. And we're doing it. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I do too. And uh, we've been hel we're helping people along, and uh, as well as ourselves, Keith. All right. So the the book is again the H the H factor by Kibion Lee and um, and Michael Ashton. Um, the personality system is the they call it Hexaco. You know, uh, beginning with with humility and even with openness to excuse. By the way, we choose our friends with people that we think are like us on honesty, humility, and like us on openness to experience. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the very interesting thing about that is, is, is that our accuracy with our friends is, is mildly positive. We're mi about 0.25 correlation, which is pretty high. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, our accuracy, um, um, but... When you, actually, our, what, what we think, we tend to think our, our friends are more like us than they are. We tend to think our friends are like us to about a 0.4, but they're actually like us to about a, about a 2.5. But, but, we, yeah, but we choose people that are like us. We don't, we don't mind if people are different from us in conscientiousness or extroversion and that stuff. But we pick, and we don't just pick friends that we think are like us on honesty, humility, openness to experience. We pick lovers that are like us. Mm -hmm. And not only that, Just, that persists, whether we divorce or not, when people chose, they chose people that they thought were similar levels. Those two seem to be very important to humans when it uh -huh. comes to affiliating. Interesting. Um, Say them again, those two. Open, honest, honesty and openness to new experience. Openness to new experience. Um, Allowing your wanting to try new things, wanting to change your opinion when given new data, mm -hmm. honesty, and or wanting to, to to do it the way that it's always been done, not wanting to receive new experience, not open to new ideas. On mm -hmm. um, honesty, humility, high on being honest, high on being humble, low, more egocentric, more in it for me, you know, more not liking things like welfare or. Um, uh, minorities, people that are low on social, high on social dom dominance, high on, on right-wing authoritarianism. They, yeah. You know, they don't like minorities, they don't like welfare, you know, th that kind of stuff. Well, that explains why authoritarians tend to like each other. They like each other. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, if Trump, Trump and what's his name, you know, in North Korea. Yeah, I know. Little, little rocket man. Yeah, rocket man. They, <laughs> they go like, well, and so the, the, the the part of it that that is most um, interesting to me was that part that I mentioned earlier. We discover our type and want to become a healthier version. And if I simultaneously discover that I'm low on H, wow, I'm pretty egocentric and feel pretty entitled. But I actually want to be a more caring person. The miracle of development and the miracle of the lower left of inner subjectivity is that. I can grow and become, and actually, depending on what my enneotype is, because you can have any of these with any enneotype, okay? I become a healthier and healthier version of myself being more egocentric. Um, um, partly because I learn to care more, and partly because I realize that, that it, it works to everybody, including me. Yes. Um, yeah. Yes, I've, I've known some people who have done that. You know, yeah. they're much better people in their older age. Yeah. No doubt about it, you know. So that's, that's, that's inspiring and that, that's helpful. Yeah, I like um, it, 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 it. The whole thing about personality being two-thirds genetic and one-third the, the, the world, mm -hmm. uh, as, as demonstrated by twin studies, mm -hmm. that's, that's very useful, particularly when, when parents have adopted kids that are, that are having a lot of difficulty. Mm -hmm. um, 
Francisco? You know, it makes sense if two-thirds of, of, of personality is inherited. Your parents have, your biological parents have some understanding of what it's like to be you. Mm -hmm. okay? Because they probably share a lot of your, your, your traits. Yeah. Um, I can see how that would be more difficult with adopted kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah we just get a, a more um, co complex understanding of things as we go. Which helps us, again, going back to have a felt appreciation of multiple points of view. It helps move us towards those, those second-tier moments of wider understanding and then looking for the action that serves the highest good. Yeah. yeah. Hallelujah. I like that part. All well, right. well, I think we've, we've done it again. Yes, <laughs> we did it again. <laughs> so, again, the book is The H Factor. Uh -huh. uh, and it's the personality types. And have did you write an article about it, or is there something that I published a blog in it? You can go to my website and and get the blog, or or sign up for my website. You know, if you sign up for my website, you will get a video of something that I think is so very cool for the next twelve weeks, and doesn't cost anything. And you have access to all kinds of material on my website. Uh, and there's all kinds of other things, videos, lots of trinket pundits on my website. Yeah, right on. And so, you know, drkeithwitt.com. Keithwitt.com. All right. Well, thanks so much uh, for tuning in to another episode of The Shrink and the Pundit with uh, me and Dr. Keith Witt. And we'll see you next time. Much love to everybody. Much love.